Open your Bibles to the book of Jude. If there was a title for today's sermon, it would be, She Ever Shall Prevail. The topic of today's sermon is going to be manifold, spiritual warfare, preservation of the saints, sola scriptura, and pastoral ministry. We're going to be looking at the next two verses in Jude, Jude 3 and 4. And this is somewhat of a thesis for today's sermon. Because the world is arrayed against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus Christ, they likewise are against us, the church. However, as the body of Christ, we can be assured that victory is already ours. For Jesus Christ has already overcome the world for us. Nevertheless, the foes of God continue to rage against us. But rest assured, in this temporary tribulation, God has given to his chosen seed sufficient protection against the devil and his seed. As the truth rings out in the hymn that we sung this morning, the church is one foundation. She will ever prevail. If you're keeping notes, it's going to be in three parts. Number one, the man. Number two, the word. And number three, the foe. Under number one, the man, we'll be looking at the appointed instrument of God's protection. That'll be 3A. Then in two, we'll look at the word, the appointed means of God's protection, 3B. And then thirdly, the foe, the appointed opponent of God's protection. That's verse four. So with your finger now in Jude, read with me, starting in verse three. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us ask him one more time to help us. Father, we ask that you would help us that you would give us the spirit to guide us in the interpretation, in the application of this word. I thank you for providing it for us this morning. Lord, may it all be to your praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, shortly before losing his life for Jesus Christ by Roman execution, the Apostle Paul, while imprisoned in Rome, wrote to Pastor Timothy. Who, remi who remained in Ephesus. 
in his second letter to Timothy, the apostle sought to stir up Timothy to the faithful and diligent discharge of his duty as a minister of the gospel, urging him to remain vigilant in protecting the scriptural treasure trove, the deposit of faith against false teachers and their errors until Christ returns in glory. And it's with this context in mind that we read what very well may have been the Apostle Paul's last words to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus. Paul says this, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the, the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That was the words of the Apostle Paul to his spiritual child in the faith, Pastor Timothy in Ephesus. Now, I believe this apostolic command was not just vital for Timothy and his ministry as an elder in Ephesus in the first century, but for all of us today. Even though this is a peculiar charge given to ministers of the gospel, it is also generally applied to all believers who are commanded by the Apostle Peter to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's not just for pastors. That's for everybody who believes in Christ in this room. And I believe that is what Jude, the slave of Christ, as we read last week, was concerned with as well. Guarding the faith, that sacred deposit of Scripture, from those who would seek to steal it and corrupt it, all to the injury and attempted defeat of the bride of Christ. And so today's message will show us how our Father in Heaven has chosen to foil not only their plans, but the plans of the devil. That is we, what we are going to be reading about this morning in these two verses in Jude. But before we begin an exposition of those two verses, I want to have a little excursus on historical theology. What is historical theology? We may have heard it. We certainly talked about historical study in our men's group this past week, and the women will be talking about historical theology, no doubt, in their group as we consider this new book about a doctrine that is being recovered. So what is historical theology? One excellent voice on historical theology is someone named G.P. Fisher. If you want a good book on historical theology, look up G.P. Fisher. And here's what he says about historical theology. He says, historical theology is the history of doctrine and the recording of the series of attempts made in successive periods to embody the contents of the gospel in clear and self-consistent propositions. That's what historical theology is. It's the history of doctrine that is recorded in a series of attempts made throughout church history to embody the contents of the gospel in clear and self-consistent propositions. 
historical theology is based upon the confidence in the clarity of Scripture and God's desire to preserve the truth. Those two things are necessary for historical theology. The clarity of Scripture, that we can understand it in the first place. And secondly, that God desires to preserve that truth. Let's take a closer look at Timothy's address, or Paul's address to Timothy. Please, if you're able, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and put your finger in verse 12. And listen again what Paul says to Timothy and how it interlocks with historical theology. That scripture is able to be understood and that God desires for its preservation. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, starting in verse 12, so you can see it now with your own eyes. You've heard it. Now read it with me. I know whom I have believed, says Paul. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Then he gives Timothy this charge. Retain the standard of sound words, Timothy, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Listen, Timothy, guard it. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Do you see God's desire to preserve truth? The apostolic declaration of God's decree to preserve doctrine. Paul says, I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That was the apostolic declaration. Then he gives this apostolic charge again to Timothy to preserve and protect. Retain the standard or the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. What do you think that pattern of sound words was? The scriptures, no doubt. It's developed teaching. No doubt the Apostle Paul had explained to Timothy, had interpreted scripture for him. Not just giving him scripture and said, here, Timothy, you figure this out. You figure out what Exodus was about. You figure out what Genesis was about. You figure out how Jesus fits into all that. No, it's recorded for us in Scripture, but the Apostle Paul and all the Apostles were teaching. Just as I and Pastor Perkins teach to you. They taught them a pattern of sound words. It was developed teaching. And again, historical theology is observing the record of how this has been accomplished by the Spirit working in men historically. If you're a student of church history at all, you see development in doctrine, don't you? You see there was a battle for the doctrine of Christology. There was a battle for the doctrine of salvation. There was a battle at the Reformation for the doctrine of Scripture and the gospel. Historical theology is the process of clarifying theology by the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So we have clarity of the word. We have, we have the objectivity of the truth. And we have the preservation of that truth through the Holy Spirit. Now listen here. This is the point. 
this should lead us to doxological praise. Historical theology, the study of doctrine through church history, makes visible the way Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth through history. I'll read it one more time. Historical theology makes visible the way that Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth through history. Now, with that brief lesson on what historical theology is and how we see it in church history and the importance of it, let us now look at our text. The man, the chosen instrument of God's protection. Listen to what Timothy says in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you. And we'll talk about what he writes instead of what he was desiring to write at first. Let's look at this first part, 3A. First, he starts out by saying, beloved. Now, we've seen that time and time again in the, in the epistle of 1 John. He constantly recalling his readers, his little children, his beloved. Certainly, it's a heartfelt declaration. I believe it's also a pastoral declaration, a pastoral love. We don't know who Jude was writing to originally as per a particular congregation, but we do know that he was a minister of the gospel. We'll talk about that more where we've seen it in other books. But the first address, beloved, is a heartfelt address. Jude, also in this heartfelt address, is drawing a line in the sand. He's drawing it right here because the rest of the letter will have two sides, two opposing sides that are drawn, I believe, by the writer Jude. Judah's drawing a line in the sand. He wants the saints to know what side they are on. He calls them beloved. And that's no wonder, because he already said that they were beloved in God. Look back at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called beloved in God the Father. You know what Judah's saying? You're beloved to me. Because you're beloved to my father. And we've said this so many times in the past that there's a supernatural bond that believers have one to another. When we see videos of our brothers and sisters huddled in Ukraine in a subway singing a hymn, we have a supernatural love for them. Have you ever met them? I haven't. But I call them brother. I call them sister. I love them. I bear their burdens in prayer. I know you do too. In a sense, Jude is saying the same thing in the beginning of his address by calling the saints beloved. Beloved. He wants them to know what side of the line that they are on. They are beloved of God. They're beloved of Jude. He also wants them to know what side of the line he is on. Beloved, you're my brother. You're my sister. I'm beloved of God, too. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, just like you. And I believe in the next line we'll get to, he'll be showing who's on the other side of that line that he's drawing in the sand right now. So he says, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, 
I felt the necessity to write to you about something else is what he's going to go on to say. But before we get to what he writes, what he has desired now to write, I want to look at what he means by while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, we don't have much information to go on of what he was desiring to write about in the first place. We have this short line. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, we know that he was eager to write. He was making every effort to do so. And about our common salvation. There's been some speculation about what is meant here. And we can say, well, in one sense, there is now a common salvation between all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have more spiritual points in, the, in a treasury of merit, as Rome would teach, than one of you as my brother and sister in Christ. As we've heard before, the ground is level at the cross. When I call you my brother, you have the same legal standing in the courtroom of heaven that I have. When I call you my sister, you have the same legal standing in the courtroom of heaven as I have. We have a common salvation. We have the same Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Father and Lord of all. Does that start sounding like something that somebody else wrote in an apostolic doctrine? There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We have deduced from our previous message that Jude is most likely writing to a predominantly Jewish audience because he's going to be talking about very Jewish things from the Old Testament very shortly as we go through this study. Maybe some of them are struggling with this. I'm of the physical seed of Abraham. And these Gentiles are second class Christians. No, no, no. Judah saying, we have a common salvation. And I desired to write to you about that. Maybe that was his intention. We don't know the context per se of why he desired to write that original message. But we do know all those things that I mentioned are true. And so again, let's see an illustration of where these things are true. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I can only do this because my brother has already preached through these. I'm not stealing any of his sermons. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. Start at verse 4. By way of reminder... What a blessed thing it is, brothers and sisters, by the way, to be going through two books of the Bible. We can see how the one divine author is at work through all 66 books. We can see the connections. That's a blessing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes this to the Ephesian congregation. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He might have added, we have a common salvation. But there's more than just a common salvation. In this verse, we have a 
pastoral responsibility. Remember, this is under the heading of the appointed instrument of God's protection. How is God protecting his church? By an appointed instrument. A man. Scroll down. Scroll down. Put your finger down to verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's danger, brothers and sisters, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. No, I have given gifts to the church, God says, to protect against that very thing. They have a ministry. Their job is for the equipping of the saints. Their job is for the work of service. There is an appointed man. He is to be a watchman on the tower, keeping the sheep safe. That is my desire. Pastor Perkins' desire is the saints in this room to keep you safe, to protect you. Not only to feed you and to nurture you and comfort you and encourage you, but to keep you safe, to protect you from false doctrine, to have you persevere in the pattern of sound words that has been given to us in the scriptures. This is the minister's responsibility to the sheep. Pray for us in that. And again, I think... Paul will say the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And that's what comes next. The Word. Look at the next part of 3b. This is where Jude tells us what he has now desired to write to the faithful, to those beloved of God the Father. That he's going to give an appeal appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints this idea of appealing is a strong language i appeal to you well, not just i encourage you i strongly encourage you to contend earnestly not half-heartedly, agonizingly. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is a contending and a striving for doctrinal purity given to Timothy as a pastor. And I believe that Jude is saying the same thing to those of the faithful which read this letter and heard it. To contend, to strive for doctrinal purity, for objective truth from the Old Testament, no doubt. That was the scripture of the early church, but also from the New Testament. They knew that there was scripture being written. They knew that there would be new covenant documents to accompany the old covenant documents. 
This is objective truth. And it was a single handing down, not to be repeated in subsequent dispensations of church history. That's not what historical theology is. We get new, fresh revelation from God. No, historical theology, remember, is the working out with more and more clarity what has already been deposited in the scriptures. That is the once and for all handed down to the saints language. Just as Christ has died once and for all, the scriptures, special revelation has been given once for all. And it's been handed down to the saints. If I asked you the question, what advantage would Paul say the Jew has? In Romans, he was being asked that very question. If Jews and Gentiles are on same ground and God made promises to the Jews, what advantage is there at even being a Jew? They're being persecuted. The temple is going to be destroyed. They're being run out of town. What advantage does a Jew have? Remember the first thing that Paul says? Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? What benefit of the circumcision? Paul says, well, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Unlike any other nation, the Jews had divine revelation. The Jews had scripture. The Jews had what was theonustos, which means God breathed. Nobody else had anything that was God breathed. Oh, they had revelation. The Greeks had revelation, but they didn't have theonustos revelation. The oracles of God were given to the Jews, and Paul says that's the first advantage they had. But have you ever thought of the connection with what Judah's saying here with that? Judah's saying, for us, Gentiles now and Jews, the church, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. What advantage does it have to be in the church? A non-believer might say. And you could say, well, first of all, we've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, that also poses an interesting question. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The church is entrusted with the oracles of God. Is there a connection between Israel and the church? Indeed, that's another sermon. But 2 Timothy 3 points this out, I think, in context of the danger that was present. The Apostle Paul points to the oracles of God, but he also points out the danger that exists. So flip to 2 Timothy, if you're able, back to where we were in chapter 3, or listen. Because Paul says something that's very much in context of what I think Jude is saying here. But realize this, Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But realize this, 
But in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. This is what Jude is going to be talking about. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That's going to be very important in Jude's argument next. The Apostle Paul says, avoid such men as these, Timothy. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Isn't that interesting? These men who have crept into the church, I would say false teachers. One of the examples he gives is crept in, entered households and taken captive weak women. There is certainly something that's going to connect with Jude here as it concerns what these false teachers were taking pleasure in. They were lover of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And it has something to do with taking advantage of weak women. But evil men, in verse 13, and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in these things you have learned and become convinced of knowing, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from the childhood you have known the sacred writings, the oracles of God, the deposit of faith, the treasure trove of truth and scripture, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Yes, the Old Testament, which Timothy was brought up in, was sufficient to give him salvation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Go figure. The Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, therefore, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I believe this has a direct Contact, uh, direct reference to what Paul is saying in Ephesians about the gifts that Christ gives to his church for the protection of her. The man of God who Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 3 in the context is the minister in the church. Surely there's an application to all of us, but it is, an, it is a charge to pastors in the church. The man of God is given the word of God so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's that equipped language again that Paul says that ministers are equipped with the word. And so here's the application. Scripture itself is the sole infallible rule for our faith and practice. Amen? The sole infallible rule for our faith and practice. But that truth has to be interpreted. Amen? Do false teachers and heretics use the Scriptures? Historical theology... 
is the record of the series of attempts made in successive periods to embody the contents of the gospel in clear and self-consistent propositions, says J.P. Fisher. So, you know what also serves to protect the church? Creeds and confessions, they serve as well to protect the church. There are four that are historic. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, the Athanasian Creed. And in addition to these creeds, there are a host of confessions that were born out of the Reformation. Now listen, confessional traditions do not prove in and of themselves to be infallible standards. Amen to that? That is something that is often misunderstood by those who are visiting Reformed churches that hold confessions. That, they, that these congregations hold these standards up to be on par or even above Scripture. And shame on those who functionally use confessions to be above Scripture. The creeds do not speak as an infallible standard, nor do the confessions. They are subordinate standards. But listen, they are standards nonetheless. They have authority in the local church. They are indeed binding and authoritative where they agree with Scripture. That is the key. Our confession, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, the Athanasian Creed, is authoritative and binding on you, brothers and sisters, as far as it agrees with Scripture. Why? Because it's Scripture that you are bound to. Remember what Luther said. Here I stand. Confessions and creeds evidence fallible men striving with the infallible word. And the spirit is working in and through the historic confessions of faith in varied measure to guard and protect the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. They are a product of historical theology. So we dare not shed confessions and creeds because we think that we are to just hold the scriptures alone. Because guess what? If you hold the scriptures alone and you shed the historic creeds and confessions of the church, who is now interpreting the Bible for you? Who is the authority? Who is the one? You. Remember our takeaway of historical theology. That historical theology makes visible the way Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth through history. And we can see this work of the spirit through these historic creeds and confessions, which are indeed products of historical theology. But if this is so, then what's the danger? And I believe in the context of Paul's instruction to Timothy about the scriptures being the only God-breathed standard in our possession, he told him and us of the danger. Paul said it this way, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, Timothy. These men were in the church. And I believe they're in the church today, the visible church. And Jude is reminding his readers of that very danger now. This is our third and final section, the foe. The 
appointed opponent of God's protection. Look at verse 4. This is why Jude is writing this. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the reason why Jude gives us why he, deter what, why he changed to, to write what he had determined to write originally. This is what the word for means at the beginning of verse 4. Again, we know this interpretive um, slogan. When you see the word for, you ask what it's there for. So why does Paul, uh, why does Jude write for here? Because he's giving the reason why he's writing now about defending the faith, about contending earnestly for the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. Because for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Jesus warned about this in the gospel, didn't he? John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. What are you saying, Jesus? There's going to be thieves and robbers who come into the fold, not through the door? Amen. And who is the door? Jesus Christ. He is the door into the sheepfold. So how did they come in? As Jesus would say, they come in some other way. As Jude says, they crept in. Long beforehand, these false teachers were marked out for this condemnation. What does this mean? They were marked out much in commentaries that discuss this. I believe there is possible connection to other works. But the long beforehand is pointing to something that was not recent. We heard in 1 John how the Apostle Paul, while he was in Ephesus in the book of Acts, was warning about imposters who would rise up in their own ranks, right? Men from your own number will rise and lead many astray. But does that fit into a context of they were marked out long ago? It was only a matter of years that Paul gave that warning in the book of Acts and to those elders, those overseers, those bishops in Ephesus. So when I hear long ago, I'm thinking of the Old Testament, that these men were marked out in the Old Testament. And although we can search the Old Testament and find places where God had prophetically warned of false teachers, no doubt, who would creep in and do such things. And even though extra canonical books, such as the book of Enoch, which we'll talk about in future sermons, talk about men who've crept into the church unnoticed. It could be that Jude is thinking of that, considering he's going to be quoting from the book of Enoch later in our sermon series. But I think it's safely assumed that what he means by long ago, they were marked out for this condemnation, again, has to do with God's decree. I think it highlights God's decree. When were you marked out for salvation? Long ago. And when were these false teachers marked out for condemnation? Long ago. This language of being marked out connotes writing in a book. When we go to the book of Revelation, we read about something called the Lamb's Book of Life, where all believers have their names written. 
I believe that Jude is drawing upon the same idea that God has a book and he has marked out those whom he has chosen. He has appointed as being their opponents, the opponents of the church. Remember what Jesus said of Judas? Was it decreed that Judas would do the things that he did? Was Judas appointed to destruction? He was. Jesus said the terrible, fearful words. It would have been better if he had never been born. Think about the weight of that comment coming from the second person of the Trinity about a man who was appointed to destruction. And it has bearing because Judas wanted to do what he did. It wasn't as if Judas said, no, 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 no. I know I'm, I'm appointed to this. God has ordained that this would happen, but I don't want to do it. And this is the struggle we have as Calvinists, right? When people who aren't even in our tradition of Reformed theology, holding the doctrines of grace, they can't get around the idea, even as Christians, that God would appoint some to eternal life and appoint some to destruction. Ignoring the fact that those who are on that wide road leading to destruction want to be there. Like Pilgrim's Progress, those who are on their way to Vanity Fair, those who are on their way to destruction, those who remained in the city of destruction, like Bunyan's own family, they wanted to stay. And so even though these false teachers were appointed long beforehand for this condemnation, they have chosen it. They desired it. Not the condemnation, but the false doctrine, the heresies, and the licentiousness. The licentiousness. Remember what Paul was saying to Timothy? These are ungodly men who are lovers of pleasure. And there's this context of creeping into women's houses. This is lewd activity. John talked about it in his epistle, being given over to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. These mark out these false teachers. There is a impropriety about their relations. And he's going to be talking about that, given examples from the Old Testament about Sodom and Gomorrah. About angels who did not keep their proper abode but were given over to sexual passions to do things that were unlawful, licentiousness. And in doing so, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You don't have to turn there, but I had mentioned that Jude parallels Second Peter. And there's a debate about which book came first because they're so similar. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Now, I think that's interesting because Peter is saying they will be among you. I think Jude is saying they're here. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be mingled 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter is saying something very similar to what Jude is saying here. These men have crept in. They were long before marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly persons. You can see it by their activity, their licentiousness. They're condemned persons, marked out by the decree of God long ago, marked out by their actions. They use grace as an excuse to sin. Could this be the group that Paul is arguing against in Romans that said, well, if grace abounds where sin abounds, should we sin all the more? May it never be. These were the antichrists that I think John were talking about. They went out from us to show they were never truly of us. 1 John 2.19 These are they that have the spirit of antichrist. 1 John 4.3 They deny Christ, our only master and Lord. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy. They hold a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. I believe when Paul says they have denied the power of godliness, it connects with they have denied their only master and Lord Jesus Christ, because it's union with him that gives the only godliness that's available. You have no godliness in and of yourself. Your godliness comes as a result of being united with Christ. And they have denied Christ, so they have a form of godliness that looks like they're godly, but they have denied its power. They've denied Christ, their only master and Lord. Avoid such men as these, Paul says to Timothy. He also says the same thing to Titus, Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Unlike the man of God, the minister of God, who's been ordained by God to minister and to protect God's sheep, who's been equipped by the Spirit for the Scriptures for every good work, these men are good for no good work. They're detestable. They're disobedient. They're worthless. Are these the proto-Gnostics of the first century? Are these the antinomians who say we don't need to follow the law? We know this. They're they're, they have unbelief and hardened hearts. They're not members of the new covenant. They're imposters and they're antichrists. And brothers and sisters, they are in the church today. What will protect us? The scriptures. The appointed man. The appointed word. This title was, She Ever Shall Prevail. I lifted that from the first hymn we sung this morning, The Church is One Foundation. She Ever Shall Prevail is the church. Why? Because of the man, the pastor, elder, and overseer, who is the instrument of God's protection, who has the word. The scriptures and the Holy Spirit's work through such men in church history as the means of God's protection. Against who? The foe. Opponents of God's protection. Those who have crept in seeking to lead astray, corrupt and soil the purity of the bride of Christ, the church. In our call to worship, we read Psalm 27. What a providential psalm. Well, it's providential for this sermon as well. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. The church is one foundation. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping. 
contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale. Against or foe or traitor. And our title, she ever shall prevail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word out of Jude. We thank you for the clarion call that it is for us in the church, not only as ministers, but as members of the body of Christ, to defend the faith, to hold the faith, to pray for those that you have appointed to teach it and to retain the sound standard of words so that your flock may be protected and fed and nourished. Oh, Lord, you are so gracious to give us gifts from heaven from the hand of your son Jesus Christ for the building up of the saints so that we may be presented to him blameless, pure, spotless, not because of our works, not because of our works, but because of his and because in him we are pure and spotless and blameless. For he has given us his righteousness. Praise be to God. Let us see this visible now as we continue our worship. And may this truth linger with us, not just today, but throughout our pilgrimage on our way to your throne. As we await the return of your son in glory for our foes are many. But we can rest because you have given us protection. And the victory is already ours in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, one day Jesus was walking with his disciples near the wondrous temple in Jerusalem. And coming to a summit overlooking the Temple Mount, the disciples seemingly pointed out the architectural marvel in awe to our Lord. In what may have been startle, a startling shift in the spirit of the conversation, Jesus uttered these words. Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Matthew 24, verse 2. Shortly thereafter, it is not surprising that we read the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? Our Lord granted their request, not with a date, but with signs that they could see with their own eyes that would serve to warn them and all those who remembered what our Lord had spoken. A description of events that would exactly precede that terrible event. The gospel writer Luke, for instance, records for us another detail that Jesus gave them. He said this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Luke 21.20 Jesus told them of the judgment that is now recorded for us in the annals of history known as the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. Our Lord then concluded his warning with these solemn words. Behold, 
I have told you in advance. History also records that there were those that listened and heeded those words and escaped the horror of that Roman siege, while others did not heed the warning and perished along with the city of Jerusalem. What Judah has recorded in our passage today, in similar fashion, is a warning from our Lord to us about coming destruction. And the same choice lays before those that are here today. Heed the divine warning and be saved, or ignore it and perish. With that in mind, let us look at our passage. Part one, our need. We need to be reminded of God's coming judgment of the ungodly. Look at verse 5a. Jude writes this. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. Herein begins Jude's labor. This verse is working towards the goal of his heartfelt, earnest appeal from the opening of his letter. Do you remember what it was? It was the thesis statement that he gave. It was the purpose that he said he was writing this letter in the first place. Let us remind ourselves of it. Look back at verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So what follows here in verse 5 is Jude's pastoral labor supporting that end. That his beloved, indeed God's beloved, would stand firm on the oracles of God and guard it from distortion and error from false teachers who had crept into the church seeking to do that very thing. That's, that was in verse 4. So what course does Jude take? And certainly the Holy Spirit was taking this course as well. What course was Jude and the Holy Spirit taking as he was inspiring what Jude wrote. What is the means chosen by God to illustrate and drive home this appeal to contend earnestly for the faith? It's the reminding of them what the scriptures say. This is what is behind the words, now I desire to remind you. Even though there is a transition taking place in Jude's thought, that from appeal to practice, it is also intimately linked to what immediately came before, namely the false teachers and their condemnation. These were the men who made it necessary for Jude to write this letter the way he did. They were the ones marked out or decreed for destruction because of their immoral and heretical influence upon the people of God. This connection is even more arresting, I believe, in the Greek, as seen in verse 4, ending with the word for denying, as in these false brethren denying the only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And with the first word of this verse being the Greek word for remember or remind. A literal ordering of the Greek, which Jude wrote, would sound something like this. The only Master and Lord of us, Jesus Christ, denying. To remind now you. 
So what Jude is going to remind his readers and hearers of is found in the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and supports the warning of these wolves who have crept into the church to devour the sheep. In the words of another, this transition has to do with God's vengeance on unbelievers and to show that it is certain and may be expected since God always deals with such persons. And this they knew by the reading of Scripture. So when Jude is giving this warning about these false teachers who had crept in, teaching these heretical doctrines, promoting a false ethic of licentiousness, Jude wants to say, remember, these false teachers will be judged. They will not get away with it. They will not escape God's wrath. Why? Let me remind you. This has happened in, his, in redemptive history in the past. God has been showing forth His judgment on the ungodly from the very beginning. That's why Jude says, now I desire to remind you. Because we have a need, brothers and sisters, that we are reminded that God will judge the ungodly. The saints who are under the throne in heaven in the book of Revelation, what do they say to the Lord? The ones who gave their life as a testimony to Christ. How long, O oh Lord? Are you going to judge them? Just a little bit longer, our Lord says. And so we need to be reminded. Those in the first century who were the first hearers of this word from Jude needed to be reminded that these false teachers who were in the church stirring up this trouble would be judged. We talked before at the beginning of Jude and as a, in my introduction that we would be going to 2 Peter often because 2 Peter says a lot of what's in Jude. These two go together. I believe Peter wrote before Jude. We've talked about that. I want to turn to Peter now to see some of these connections. Turn, if you're able, to 2 Peter. Because it wasn't just Jude who had this burden to remind the faithful. Peter did as well. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 10, but we're going to look at verse 12. Peter wrote this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing for you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. These things were godly things. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present within you. You see, the Apostle Peter had a burden to constantly remind those he was writing to. And so does Jude, and says he says something very similar to what Jude has said. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Whereas Jude said, now I desire to remind you, though you know all these things once for all. Where did they know these things from? Well, certainly apostolic teaching. 
but also the Old Testament. Flip ahead to chapter 3 in 2 Peter, verse 1. Listen to Peter again. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. What is Peter saying? The same thing. We need to be reminded. We have a need of being reminded of what is in the Old Testament. It's a sad thing, brothers and sisters, that some churches don't preach the Old Testament because we preach the New Testament. I'm a minister of the New Testament. Well, certainly, I stand before you as a minister of the gospel of the New Covenant. But brothers and sisters, there is no distinction that is hard and fast between the Old and the New Covenant in the sense that the Old prepares the way for the New. We must not jettison it. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What would the Apostle Paul say to someone who said, we don't need the Old Testament, that's for the Jews. We have the New Testament. Foolishness. For what was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Were you instructed out of Numbers chapter 15 this morning? Did you see Christ in Numbers 15? Because remember what Paul wrote to Timothy, that the scriptures that you were taught from youth, from your mother and grandmother, were able to make you wise unto salvation. Unto salvation in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament preaches Christ. Jesus would use that as a rebuke to the scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees who would say, we have eternal life because we know the scriptures. And Jesus would say, how dare you? These are they that testify about me. We need to read our Old Testaments looking for Christ, for they are they that testify about him. And your heart will burn when you look for him and find him there like a treasure hidden in a field, a pearl of great price. Yes, we have a need to be reminded of the Old Testament. And in this context, in Jude, to be reminded of the warnings in the Old Testament and the promise of judgment that will come upon the ungodly. There is a context and a need that we have, brothers and sisters, as believers, to know that judgment will come upon the ungodly. You might say, I'm a believer. I don't need to be warned of that judgment. Oh, yes, you do. Why do you need to be reminded of that judgment? Let's continue reading. Our advantage. Because we need to be reminded, God has given us something that we have in the covenant community to our advantage. We have recorded for us providential pictures of God's coming judgment of the ungodly. Jude's thought was that now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once and for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, 
subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. He's reminding them of something that happened in redemptive history, recorded for them in the scriptures that he wants them to pay attention to. Jude is talking to believers here. This is not a letter to the outside world. This is a letter to the covenant community. And he wants them to remember the Exodus. What about the Exodus? Exodus chapter 12, verse 50, starts out with these words. After God gives them instruction of the Passover meal, how it was instituted, how it should be followed, then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on the same day, the Lord, if you're looking in Exodus chapter 12, verse 51, you might notice that Lord is in all caps there because it is the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Yahweh brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. What a blessing. The covenant community was rescued. Yahweh brought them out of Egypt. By the way, as a side note, there were some Egyptians that gathered with them as well. Faithful Egyptians. Go back to numbers we read this morning. Those who are faithful not only in the covenant community, but even the aliens who sojourn among them. A picture of Jews and Gentiles being one people left Egypt. Was the Jew who left Egypt any more saved than the Egyptian who left Egypt with the Israelite community? No. They both received the same physical redemption. They were brought out and spared. Seemingly, these were the same Egyptians that passed through the parted Red Sea. While that same Red Sea crashed upon Pharaoh's army behind them. Yes, there is a blessing to being with the covenant community. Even if you are not numbered among them as the elect, you are still receiving blessing. Our children are still called holy, even though they are not saved. Our children don't become holy when they become saved. They are holy because they are born from, from covenant community members. They are legitimate children. Legitimate children of new covenant members who receive a manifold of blessings. One of them is being here with us today, hearing this preached word. I pray that another one is sitting in family worship as we instruct our families. Yes, there is a blessing to being in the covenant community. But I also want to draw you to a textual variant, which I think is very important and will be very edifying for us. In our translation, you may see it says that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. I read for you Exodus chapter 12, and who is the Lord in context? It is Yahweh. 
Now, without giving you a big history lesson of textual criticism, I will just point out to you that this is what scholars call a textual variant, which means that there are manuscripts that don't say the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. But there are other manuscripts that say this, that Jesus after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. And I believe that research has showed and history has borne out that the more accurate reading is Jesus. That Jesus was actually the original reading of this word by Jude. So if you want, if you feel free to write up in your Bibles, circle the word Lord and write down Jesus. Because I believe that is what Jude wrote. There may be a note in your Bibles that says that. Jesus is the one who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Let's turn back to the book of Numbers. We've been in there in the mornings in our providential readings. Let's turn to Numbers 14. We've read this a few weeks ago. Now we can read it again in context of this sermon. Numbers 14, starting in verse 29, because something happened to the covenant community after Jesus saved them out of the land of Egypt. And this is what happened. Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 29. Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? Brothers and sisters, this is the same congregation, the same ecclesia, the same church that came out of Egypt. I have heard their complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward. That's a promise of judgment. Surely you have not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness." Now, a whole sermon could be given just on that portion from Numbers 14. One commentator gave this startling statistic, which I think will impress upon our souls and our hearts the severity of this issue. When you do all the math and you find out the numbers of each tribe and you find out the numbers of those in the wilderness and you listen to what the Lord said here about the corpses that will fall, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upwards who have grumbled against me, in that time in the wilderness, it would be about 90 Israelites a day that would die. <clears throat> 90 Israelites a day would die as a sign of God's judgment, a sign that this promise would come true and was coming true before their eyes. And again, some may say the Gnostics who were in the first century who had crept into the church. You see, 
that God in the Old Testament is an evil God. 90 people a day in the congregation? Well, we have Jesus now in the New Testament. He's a good God, but the God of the Old Testament in Gnosticism is a bad God. This is what they were teaching. But remember what Jude wrote. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once and for all, that Jesus, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Is that the picture you have of Jesus? Is your vision of Jesus a truncated Jesus? Or is your picture of Jesus a biblical Jesus? Read the book of Revelation, and you will see that Jesus is a conquering king. And the blood will reach up to the saddles on the horses at his return. Because he does not come meek and lowly the second time. But he comes with a rod of iron as a conquering king. And it shouldn't, shouldn't be surprising to us that we read that Christ was there in the wilderness, that Jesus was the one who brought the people out of the land of Egypt. Because I want to show you, Jude wasn't the only one who taught that. It was all the apostles. And I believe they learned it from Jesus. That Jesus taught the apostles and showed them the places in the Old Testament that concerned Him. Turn, if you're able, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because the Apostle Paul desires to warn us, brothers and sisters, to warn us by learning from corporate Israel's mistakes. We are to look to the nation of Israel and learn from their mistakes. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. You see, Christ was there. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Ninety Israelites a day. Now these things happened as an example for us. There it is again. Throw away the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. May it never be. These things happen as an example for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now those of us who know our Old Testaments know what that play was. Licentiousness. Immorality. Physical immorality. The very thing that the false teachers were doing in the New Covenant community as they promoted licentiousness. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. We can do a sermon on that. 
nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Who might that be? Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Brothers and sisters, the ends of the ages have come upon the new covenant community. For we are God's people. The ethnic Israelite and the spiritual Israelite have come together, making one people of God, the Israel of God, the church. We are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Learn from the Old Testament. Learn from the pictures that we have in the Old Testament. They are there providentially to warn us and to instruct us and to guide us, not only in godly lives, but to warn us of judgment. We have an advantage. The world outside the covenant community does not have this advantage. They do not have the oracles of God, the New Testament, and the Old Testament. We have that advantage. Heed it. They are providential pictures recorded for our good. And again, part of that warning is judgment. Is judgment. Look at the end of verse 5. We need to be warned of God's coming judgment on the ungodly. Because this same Jesus who saved the people out of a land of Egypt subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Did not believe what? The oracles of God. The promises that God has made. Do you believe them? Let's turn back to 2 Peter. Parallel passage. 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter gives examples of God's destruction on the ungodly, just as Jude does. This is a three-part sermon because there are three examples that Jude gives. We're looking at the first one. It's the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, being destroyed in the wilderness. That's the first picture Jude gives. He's going to go on to give a picture of the fallen angels who again engaged in sexual immorality and licentiousness. He's going to give another picture, a third one, of Sodom and Gomorrah where there was licentiousness on display. Peter is going to give the same, except he's not going to talk about the children of Israel in the wilderness. He's going to talk about the flood. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, while he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day and night. 
day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. These are the very scriptures and the very Old Testament illustrations that these false teachers should have made themselves aware of. That there was a pattern happening over and over again in the Old Testament. And if you found yourself as a minister in the church in the New Covenant teaching the very things that were judged in the Old Testament, what a clarion call to flee, repent. But instead, as Jude says, they had denied the only Lord and Master who bought them. Now, you may be sitting here saying, I'm not a teacher in the New Testament, the New Covenant, the new community of God's people, where these promises have found their fulfillment in Christ. Again, why do I need to hear these judgments? Well, Peter ended here in verse 9, that he know, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, but he also knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Because even though you may not be a teacher in the church teaching these things, you may be tempted to practice such things. And to that, everyone in the covenant community needs to hear these warnings. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brethren. That there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm till the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. When who provoked me? For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? This is the same thing that Judah is saying. He's given the same illustration. Verse 17, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So warnings in the new covenant? Why do you need those warnings? Hebrews 2 verse 1, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Here's a question for us, brothers and sisters. For those who gather and hear the preached word, who gather with the new covenant community, who has the greater judgment? The Israelites? who saw the miracles of God 
who saw the ten plagues on Egypt, who saw the Red Sea parted, who saw manna fall from heaven, who saw the split rock and water come out, who saw their shoes never wearing out on their long journey for 40 years. Who has more judgment? Them who saw those miracles? Or you? The one who heard the testimony in the church of Jesus Christ and rejected it. It's us. Judgment begins in the household of God. Jesus said Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented in sackcloth and ashes if they saw him, if they heard of him. All those who gather in the New Covenant community who have heard of Christ need to hear this warning so that we pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I want to end with an illustration. Turn, if you're able, to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Pastor Perkins taught us this section from Matthew when he was going through that gospel. I want to remind us of it today. It's the parable of the marriage feast. You've heard it. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. And think of the implications for what we've said and learned this far about warnings in the covenant community from the Old Testament as our example. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. These are those in the covenant community of the Old Testament. The false teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who said that Jesus was a blasphemer. They were unwilling to come to the marriage feast. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock. They're all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The Lord Jesus bids us come every week, every Lord's Day to this congregation, does he not? This is a feast. This is a wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his own business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. How many people have you told about Jesus? Invited to come to church. Pray that they would come to church, but never do. These are they that are invited. But go back to their farms. Go back to their businesses. And some of us who do so are seized and mistreated and killed. Maybe you're in Turkey. Maybe you're in Iran. Maybe you're in America. Verse 7, but the king was enraged. Who's the king? That's God. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers 
and set their city on fire. Do you see Matthew 24? Do you see the destruction on Jerusalem in 70 AD? The same word here used for destroyed is the same word that Jude uses when he says that Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. Same word. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. This is the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Come, come to the house of the Lord. Hear of Christ and salvation. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, faithful to the great commission, both evil and good, both evil and good. And when the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? What does the wedding clothes represent? Christ's righteousness. Are you telling me that there are some who gather at the wedding feast who aren't wearing wedding clothes? Who aren't wearing Christ's righteousness? Are there are some who come to church every week and do not believe? Yes, there are. And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Brothers and sisters, why do we need warnings in the new covenant community? Take heed of this parable. The wedding hall is filled with guests this day. Some are wearing wedding clothes, and some are not. Please do not think simply because you are here this morning that you are clothed and will not be cast out. It is only by wearing the righteous robe of Christ that you will be spared. Please do not think that simply because you come week after week to the gathering of the saints that you are earning a standing before the Lord. Remember, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. Flee to Christ and live. All of those who have flown to Christ for salvation, rest assured, God knows how to keep you in the midst of an ungodly world, just as he kept Lot in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to end by reading 1 Corinthians 10. We read the first verse out of 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? 
Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We are going to partake of this Lord's Supper in moments. And this is one cup and one body, one bread, symbolizing that we are one body. Let us encourage each other and let us stand firm on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, wearing the righteous robe of Christ in the wedding feast so that when the master returns, he does not say, how did you get in here? But rather, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in to my rest. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Go to the Old Testament and read of it, of Christ. It's laid for you in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? And that is to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Let us pray to him now. God, we thank you for this precious word. We thank you for the warnings that are in the New Testament, Lord. Forgive us for ever thinking we didn't need to hear them. We recognize, Lord, that the wedding feasts are filled week after week with those who are wearing your righteousness and those who are not. Let us pray more earnestly for those even in our own midst, who have yet to put on Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Lord, refresh us, even by the words of this sermon, not from the judgment that will come upon the ungodly. That is a warning that goes out to them. But refresh us in knowing that you are able to keep the godly, even in the midst of of a wicked and perverse world. That even though we may be tempted as your people by such things, you always give us a way of escape so that we are able to endure it. Grant us a greater measure to flee the idolatry that is in our lives. May we not cling to earthly things but rather cling to heavenly things. Your son, Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, who became man for us, who became sin for us, so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your spirit who makes it, who makes it effect, effectual unto salvation and the strengthening of our souls. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things, and we all say, Amen. Amen.